Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Well, Shabbat Shalom, Uvrachot, Am Etzheim. It's a blessing to be here. I sense a real hunger in here this morning, uh, which is always a good thing. Uh, I, this is not a part of my message, but it says in the Mishnah in Shabbat 7-2 that there are 39 forbidden melachot, forbidden works of the Sabbath. And these are derived from the way that Israel was to construct the tabernacle. That these are 39 works went into building the Mishkan itself. We read in the Torah that God told Moses to tell the people of Israel, you're to build this sanctuary according to the pattern that, I, that I've given you, Exodus 25, 9. But he says, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to build it. Now, of course, I, I don't know how many here are, are diehard, halakhically observant, but there's an interesting principle here that the sages have given to us that we can actually use. And that is this, is that we are to prepare ourselves before we enter into the presence of God. We are to build the tabernacle in our own space and time for God to visit us. Because when it is time for Shabbat, when it is time for the message to go forth, there's no more time to prepare. You're not supposed to be working during that time. You're supposed to give your full attention to the living God. Our whole attention to Him. This is an amazing week. You know, I woke up on Monday to the inauguration of the uh, embassy and U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. And then Wednesday, the Guatemalan embassy. Thursday, Netanyahu meeting with the Panamanian president. And just all of these things, you know, Turkey, Iran, just all of these, these prophetic things occurring. And right as we're building up to Shavuot, message today is Shavuot, paradigm, power, and expression. Now, I'm kind of uh, soft-spoken, so I apologize. Um, I'll try to keep my composure here. That was wonderful worship. It really was. It, It was a blessing. It was a real blessing. There's some friends of ours from from our Hafdala group here uh, this morning and drove all the way from the state of South Lake, Texas. And so welcome them. And uh, I miss seeing Rabbi David and Elizabeth. Uh, we don't get to see each other as often as we would like, but when we do, it's, it's usually a, some kind of divine appointment when we talk. So, well, we already went through Acts chapter 2. I don't even need to read it. But... Uh, If you go to that next slide there, Acts chapter 2 occurs most likely on the Temple Mount. You know, traditional, the traditional Christian interpretation has been that it occurred in the upper room. But if we read the text just carefully, we'll see that, you know, there's thousands of Jewish people from the known Roman diaspora of the time. They're gathered, there's this uh, 100, at least 120 
Jewish believers in Yeshua already there according to Acts 1.15. So this must be occurring on the actual temple complex, temple mount complex itself. We can't be absolutely sure, but I think we could be probably 95% sure. We find uh, in Acts chapter 2 the term oikos, which means house. I know there's probably one Greek scholar in here, so please forgive me if I mispronounce that. But we read in Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Tongues like fire spreading out appeared to them and settled on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and all began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. I promised myself that I would use my indoor voice um, so that my wife wouldn't tell me I was yelling at home later. You can go to the next slide. But that word for house there is, is in the Greek is used sometimes for the tabernacle in Brich HaRashah in the New Testament. It's also used for the temple itself. And it's also used... Interestingly enough, for a, a human body when a spirit comes to possess. And so there's already this picture of God's Ruach coming in and filling his people. This uh, actually is from the prophetic books. Ezekiel 43, God's spirit wants to come into the temple. Uh, Isaiah 44, uh, 1 through 3 I will pour water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And my uh, blessing upon your descendants. God had already wanted to do this. And of course, the first Shavuot took place at Sinai. In Exodus 19. Some of the f- characteristics of Shavuot in Acts chapter 9. Can I come down here? Is that okay? I can come down here. Good. I like to kind of mingle, you know, say hi and everything. Slap him on the head. No, no violence. Uh, let's go to the next slide here. I have three main points here today. One is the paradigm. What is a paradigm for those who who are not uh, too savvy on the terminology? A paradigm is just a framework or a structure. That's all it is. It can be a pattern. You see it up here on the PowerPoint. If you look in in Judaism, the structure of Judaism, uh, there's what's called keva. You have a, a keva structure. There are keva prayers. The Amidah is a keva prayer. It's a structured prayer. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, that's a keva prayer. In other words, it's a fixed prayer. It's one we didn't originate, we didn't uh, make up. It's one that often we pray liturgically and we enter into some form of kavana, intent or focus, some type of, of attentiveness of, of the living God, the God of Israel. Keva can also be the actual Shabbat Shacharit service that begins with the Pesuket de Zimra, the Shema, the Amidah, the Kriyat Torah, and the Aleinu. And what we see 
in Acts, what we see throughout the Word of God is we see that God always works within a structure. He always works within a framework, and often he will actually set up a framework. We see this whole idea of a framework throughout all of creation. Genesis chapter 1. We see a framework in the subatomic world with atoms and molecules. We see it to the largest galaxies, that everything is in its own kind of order. And everything has its own boundaries. Genesis 1 speaks about all the boundaries that God has given. There is a boundary for the seas. Okay? And God made a distinction. He saw the light that it was good. And he made a distinction between the light and between the darkness. He set a boundary between the light and between the darkness. See, boundaries are not bad. Boundaries are good. God can bring us to the fullness of our maturity in Him by the boundaries He's put in our lives. Our bo- your boundaries are not meant to limit you the way that you feel pressured by your boundaries. God wants to bring you to the fullness of your maturity in Him by whatever boundaries you may have, whether they're good or bad. It's a trust factor. What did we see this week? We saw Palestinians rioting on the borders of Gaza while God was bringing the support of America right into the heart of Israel in Jerusalem. Everyone here lives in a home, right? I mean, we don't have any homeless people. If you do, I hope, I hope that you're being you know, ministered to. But everyone lives in a home, right? Your children come to maturity within those borders. Sometimes there's a little bit of uh, friction within those borders. But your family comes into maturity within those borders. Uh, If you want to download this PowerPoint, uh, you could take a snapshot, and there's a link on there whenever you get a chance to show that. Uh, I think it's right at the beginning, up there. Well, we look in Genesis 1, verse 2. We see the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the waters, and, and He's a part of this whole thing of setting boundaries. And there was dark, formlessness and void and darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, Yehi or vahi or, light be, and there was light. And so the Spirit of God plays a role in defining boundaries in our lives. This is what happens in Shavuot in Exodus chapter 19. God has declared Israel to be his witness throughout all the earth, his Am Segula, his Mamlechet Kohanim, his kingdom of priests throughout all the earth. But we see that he's decreed some boundaries around Mount Sinai. That there's only so far that, that every level of Israeli society can, can get. And he's calling some of the leaders up. We see that a structure is necessary for an outpouring of the Spirit. There is no way for me to receive a drink of water 
without some type of vessel for me to receive it in from. We all need a vessel. And we have all been created to be vessels. So we see that a structure is necessary. I had a dialogue with the individual one time. And I said, uh, I don't believe in organized religion. I said, so you believe in chaos? He said, well, no, not quite exactly. I just don't believe in any kind of structure. But that's not what we see with the outpouring of God's Spirit on Shavuot. We see that there is a structure that God has decreed. There are some characteristics in uh, Exodus of the first Shavuot. There is a declaration of Israel as God's witness in the earth. There's a waiting for Hashem to come down. There are special instructions for sanctification in how the people are to interact with God's presence. There's supernatural phenomena. There's the actual voice of the Lord. We see that Israel saw no form because it says that God surrounded himself with darkness. So the visibility is blurry. There's not a whole lot of clarity there on the actual mount. And of course, Israel could not bear his voice in, in chapter 20 and were fearful. What we see here is that God wants to bring his people into his presence, but there's a certain protocol that he's also giving in order to interact with his presence. Imagine if someone invited you to their home and you spent the whole time at their house studying their walls and their framework. Oh, look at this pillar over here. Oh, wow. What, what is that, 20 feet? Oh, what is... And you just totally ignore the host. Unfortunately, in Judaism, we tend to do that a lot. We tend to study the framework without actually having the presence of the framer. And, and we Messianic Jews do it. E everyone does it. Sometimes we get so focused on the framework that we forget the framer because the framework is for the framer, for us to interact with the framer. I go to your house and I have dinner and uh, I'm going to play by your rules, not by mine. I went to a, a one rabbi's house once and he invited me over for Shabbat dinner. And I just was being plain about the voice of the Lord. And he said, well, I don't believe that God speaks nowadays. And I was about to say something and the Holy Spirit quickened me and he said, this is not your house. This is his. That's his, that's, if he doesn't believe, all right. I'm going to play by your rules. But if, if you come to my house, you're also going to, please take your shoes off. Uh, sorry to, you know, uh, make you uncomfortable if you're not used to that. But we have the framework and we have the framer. And the framework, as I said, is for us to actually operate in the freedom that the framer gives us. It's not to uh, discourage us. It's not to stifle us. It's so that we will grow. Look at it this way. In creation, because everything has its boundary, 
as I said, everything can come into the fullness of its maturity. But if things get out of their boundaries, what begins to happen is there begins to be an imbalance. We, we, you know, there are these science articles about imbalances of ecosystems where different species are introduced into different uh, areas of the world. And, and so they begin to, to take over. Look at Florida with all those pythons. They have all these snakes because it, it, there's an invasive species that has gotten out of its natural, out of its own environment, out of the, the boundary that it was created for. And now it's wreaking havoc on that state, on its ecosystem. God gave Israel a framework. Yeshua, through his work on the cross and in his, re his resurrection, he did the work that no one after the likeness of Adam Harishon, the first Adam, could do. He lived totally for the Father's will. And he did it because he was within the unique identity of the God of Israel. No one is righteous enough to do what Yeshua did through his work on the cross and his resurrection. There's no rabbi, there's no tzaddik who's righteous enough because it's not merely about righteousness. It's about life and death. Our spirits are dead without Yeshua. Our spirits are dead without Yeshua. There might be one who might say, well, you're only a sinner if you sin. Yes, but if we transgress even in the smallest, then we've tainted the image of God that we've been created. I come across many individuals throughout the Messianic community who subtly begin to buy into this idea that Israel does not need the Besorah, that Israel does not need the gospel of Yeshua because there are rabbis who study it day and night and who are great Sadiqim. And my response to that is John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin. This man came to Yeshua by night and said, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Yeshua said, Amen, amen. I tell you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responded and he said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter back into his mother's womb when he is old? And Yeshua responded and said to him, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is born of the flesh, and that which is spirit is born of the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You hear the sound of the wind, you know where it comes from, and where you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going, and so is everyone who's born of the spirit. And Nicodemus responds and says, how can these things be? And Yeshua's response to him is, is brilliant. I love it. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? <laughs> there are great rabbis. There are great Hasidic rabbis who know the ins and outs, the, the 
the tittles of, and the jots of the Torah, but they need the rebirth in as much as everyone else. Yeshua continued, and he said, we speak what we know, and we bear testimony of what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The rebirth is a thing of the earth. It's not a thing of the heavens. Chew on that for a while. The rebirth is a thing that God has decreed for us here on the earth. He said, no one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. And even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved Ha'aletz. For God so loved Ha'olam. For God so loved the world. God so loved the creation that he gave his only begotten Son, Yeshua. That whoever believes in him should not perish but shall have everlasting life. Our spirits are dead without Yeshua. He did what no one could do. I love Ecclesiastes 8.8. I think it's just one of the coolest verses ever. He says, "No, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. No one has power over death. There's no release from that war, and wickedness doesn't deliver from it. But when we look in John chapter 10, 17, 18, Yeshua says this. He says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back up. That is the rebirth. It's a rebirth of power. It's a rebirth of resurrection. It's a rebirth of being filled in the likeness of the divine nature of the Messiah. But that rebirth is accompanied often by the supernatural. Yeshua set up this permanent structure that is built on the prophets, that is built on the Torah. It doesn't do away with it, but it's given a platform because of it. There is a structure, there is a promise for God's spirit dwelling in us. His glory dwelling among us. This is the whole purpose of the Mishkana, of the tabernacle. So my first point here would be this, is that the paradigm, the pattern of empowerment, we are enabled by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the paradigm. This is the structure that Yeshua has given to us. The Ruach will lead and empower us into fulfilling the word to Yeshua's glory. I get into these sometimes theological conversations with individuals who don't believe that, and and they're believers too, and they don't believe that the immersion in the Ruach, in the Spirit, is for today. And my response is usually the same thing, because to me it's pretty simple. I'm a simple guy. I didn't plan to, you know, make some academic thing out of this or anything like that. But it's like this. 
do people get saved today? Do people get born again today? Well, yeah, absolutely. But Yeshua died 2,000 years ago. He, he died once. He was resurrected once. And people can still be born again today? Absolutely. So just because the Ruach fell thousands of years ago, that would mean they could still get immersed today, right? I mean, A and B equals C, and 1 plus 2 equals 3. It's simple. It's simple. Ta'am. It's simple. When we look at Acts chapter 2, Shavuot has some of the same characteristics in Exodus 19 and 20. There's a declaration of God's witnesses of the earth. Jewish disciples to Israel, the nations. There's a waiting for God's spirit to come. Special instructions and how the people are to interact with God's presence. The disciples were to remain Jews. John 17 is the prayer of sanctification for the followers of Yeshua. I'm going to turn there here. We see in Acts chapter 1 that there's a restructuring of the camp, of the body of the disciples. They had to restructure because Judas had, had you know, went the way of apostasy, and so they had to get some more bodies involved. There's also supernatural phenomena that the Holy Spirit brings in chapter 2. When the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. They were all in the same framework. And that framework that they were in was filled before they were filled. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. They were all filled with the Ruach Kodesh and began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. What happens subsequently is that Peter, he launches into this message and 3,000 Jewish people come to know Yeshua. The text that he uses is Joel chapter 3. Well, it's Joel chapter 3 in the Tanakh. It's Joel 2, 28-32 in the uh, Christian English version. And before I get into that, I, I want to I give you the simplest, plainest meaning of what the prophetic is. Because it's a prophetic text that he brings forth, and he's uttering it in a prophetic way. Prophetic is not some super hard thing to understand. Uh, prophetic, it doesn't mean all this mystical kind of stuff that sometimes comes out of, out of charismatic, you know, sections of, of Christianity. Prophetic just means this, on earth as it is in heaven. That's the simplest meaning. There's nothing you know, woo, you know, weird about it, you know, and let me say this, I'll say this, um, God doesn't make you weird, you make yourself weird, huh, we're, we're a peculiar people, we're not a weird people, I, I have a friend who calls me up sometimes, with, and they're a little kooky, uh, and said, I, I'm going to build an altar in my backyard, so you know you don't need to do that, 
Well, there's a congregation. There's a congregation over here, and they have, they built an altar in the back. So, well, listen, they, you, you don't need to do that. You know. See, people do all kinds of weird things to try to get a hold of God, except for the actual thing that he said. We try to do some other kind of structure instead of doing the actual structure and abiding in the structure, the sukkah, where his shekhinah can visit us. The Holy Spirit gave me an answer for them this one day that they called me. And he said, ask them. Because they, they told me, they said, well, I'm a, I'm a peculiar person. I said, no, you're not peculiar, you're weird. And this was the question that the Lord wanted me to give to them. It's like a litmus test we can all ask ourselves when we come into the presence of God. Am I being weird? Or am I being effective for the kingdom? Because weirdness doesn't mean effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Weirdness doesn't mean effectiveness for the spreading of Yeshua's message to the lost. So the simplest meaning of the prophetic is an act, a word, or a work. Anything that will restructure earth to look like heaven. Because that's the whole point of Yeshua's Besorah of the kingdom. It's so that the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Am I wrong? I could be, I could be, I I don't know. This has bothered me. I asked the question several months ago. I said, why does Peter use this passage in Joel? I don't get it. I don't know. Well, there's a section in the Passover Haggadah called the Magi. Do it backwards. No, I'm not going to do that today. But if you look at the Magid section of the Haggadah, the Magid section is the longest section of the Haggadah. In the Me'am in Loez, the, in the which is a, a 18th century Sephardic uh, commentary, the Haggadah of the Me'am Loez is th- about 300 pages. And the Magid section of the Me'am Loez Haggadah is 80 pages. From the Kadesh to the Urchatz, it's only 9 pages. I have another Haggadah at home. We have several. The, the Or Someach, and that one's about 200 pages. And the Magid section is, is pretty long. The Magid is the section where we tell the Passover story. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach just for about, just to, like that, just a little bit, okay? Just so that you can have a foundation to understand where I believe God wants to take us to. See, faith causes us to jump to a new level. Teaching establishes us at that level. I ask the question, why does Peter use the passage in the Haggadah? The Haggadah most likely was written before the middle of the 2nd century CE, according to Pesachim 116a. My my passages in in the Mishnah are Pesachim 116a, 110a, 103a. 
uh, it's well known that the Seder order had been well established even before Yeshua's birth. There's that thing called the Hillel sandwich that they make. Guess what? Rabbi Hillel lived a couple of decades before Yeshua. All right? But the Haggadah itself was not completed to the second century. From Pesachim 116a, it's clearly that clear that considerable portions of the Seder service were already adopted prior to the destruction of the temple in the year 70 CE. So it's known that after the destruction of the temple, this is known all across the scholarship world, the rabbinic world. These are two really good uh, scholarly books on the subject if you're interested in reading more about this. I'm not going to get very deep into it. But we have an understanding that there was a reordering, there was a restructuring of Judaism after the temple was destroyed. Descriptions of Passover from pre-Rabbinic Judaism hold that the Passover sacrifice was originally central to Passover, but when the temple was destroyed, there was a paradigm shift because there was no more sacrifices. So what became central was not so much the sacrifice but a testimony of the sacrifice. Is everyone following me? The response of rabbinic Judaism was that the telling of the Exodus was, and to this day, is still central. And so this is why that section of the Magid section is longer than other sections. And this is significant in in a number of ways because the telling, the Magid section, is a transmission of, of the testimony of God's deliverance for Israel. Everyone following me? All right. Now compare that, compare that for a moment with the command of Yeshua to transmit the testimony of his deliverance, his testimony of of what he has done as the central component of God's work of bringing redemption to Israel through his sacrifice. There's also some scholarly work that, actually it's this second book, uh, The Origins of Passover and Easter from Modern History to the, the from, from Ancient History to the Modern Era, uh, that discusses the reality that the Haggadah's positioning of the Exodus testimony of deliverance is actually a shared form of redemption with the Messianic Jewish interpretation but it's on an opposite end of the spectrum meant to compete with it. So you've got Messianic Jews in that century proclaiming the testimony of Yeshua, and you have already the pre-Rabbinic Judaism that is beginning to stress the Exodus deliverance, the Exodus Besorah, as a way to compete with the testimony of Yeshua, the Besorah, the Gospel. One telling emphasizes the story of Passover in Egypt. Another telling emphasizes the Passover in Jerusalem. One telling decentralizes the role of sacrifice. Another centralizes the role of the sacrifice Lamb of God. When the Magid section, you know, we get to that part of the Passover Seder when we begin to proclaim the Ten Judgments, right? Itach, Adash, Bechav. We proclaim them. In the Magid section, it's not found in Western European Jewish uh, traditions, but it is found in, in, in the majority of Sephardi and Mizrahi traditions. Uh, 
there's a recitation of Deuteronomy 26 where we read that God brought Israel out of Egypt with a Yad Chazakah, an outstretched hand and an Uvizuan Nituya and a mighty arm. And right after the ten plagues are, uh, occur, there's a small section of Joel chapter 3, Joel chapter 2, that's inserted there. And it's in the, it's in the section of wonders, the moth team. Dam ve'esh ve'timrot ashan. Blood, fire, and date palms of smoke. It doesn't say columns. Columns are implied because a date palm is like a column. And so the, the emphasis there is clearly eschatological. It's referring to a future messianic hope that the rabbis saw in that section of Joel. Now that section of Joel is really interesting. It's really pertinent to why I believe that Peter uses it here. And by the way, Timroth uh, Ashan, what was uh, Tamar? Tamar, her name means date palm in Genesis. Judah and Tamar. This is, you know, it says, it says here in, in Joel chapter 3, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, date, palms of smoke. You ever looked at a date palm before? This, I, I wasn't going to get it. I wasn't going to show this, but I, it's, it's too fun to resist. You go to that last slide. Show, show a date palm of smoke. That's a date palm of smoke. Okay? And there, there are numerous rabbis who would concur uh, with with this with this way of understanding what Joel's talking about, it it most likely could refer to nuclear weapons. So Joel's speaking about the end times. The rabbis understand a messianic messianic redemption at the end of the age. There's a plague that God pours out on the nations who go against Israel in Zechariah, and it, and, and the 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 way it's described as the tongues dissolving and the eyes dissolving, and it. it what is described there is something akin to nuclear fallout. My oversight at, in the Jewish ministry is Dr. Greg Stone. He's the former launch control officer for the United States of America, the nuclear launch control officer during the Cold War. That means that if we had ever went to war with Russia, he would have pressed the button. And if he would have done that, I would have never met my wife because she's a Jew from Russia. Peter, what he does is he quotes this entire passage of Joel chapter 3. Not as a way of hinting at a future messianic redemption, but as a way of saying this is that redemption that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he uses that to launch into a message of the kingdom of Jesus, Yeshua. Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15 alludes to a deliverance that even eclipses the redemption from Egypt. I have it on the slide here. Assuredly, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be said as the Lord lives who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought Israel out of the north land and out of all the lands to which he had banished them. For I will bring them back to their land which I gave to their fathers. So Peter's usage of Joel 3 has to do with the recognition that the second redemption of Israel has taken place. And how has that redemption taken place? It has taken place through the work 
death, and resurrection of Yeshua, Israel's Messiah. The Spirit has been poured out. Signs of judgment on world systems will take place because God is pouring out His Spirit on those who are delivered out of the world system through what Yeshua has done. There is a call in Acts chapter 2 to return and repent along with a proposition to receive the outpouring, the infilling, the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is not just to us, but it's a generational promise to our children. I love seeing the children dance this morning. It was such a blessing. I haven't seen it in a long time. We are awaiting Messiah's return where there will be the fullness of Israel's redemption. As I'm reading this text, what is impressed in me, and I've had this uh, very heavy on my, in my spirit for quite some time, is the message of Yeshua is the final prophetic message of God to Israel. And it also includes the nations. You see, the prophets, they prophesied, Sanhedrin 99a, all the prophets prophesied only about the days of Messiah. You know that the majority of the Bible speaks about our time more so than it does about Yeshua's time. Yeshua is the prophet par excellence who has poured out his spirit. And anyone who takes up the call of the great commission to the Jew first, then to the Greek, is endowed with the spirit of prophecy because the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy, is the essence of prophecy according to Revelation chapter 19. Peter preaches the gospel and acts filled completely by the Holy Spirit in a prophetic manner of Israel's prophets and how they address the nation. When Peter says, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He's making a statement. He's not just pointing out a reality. He's making a statement of loyalty to Israel's prophetic tradition that often we were disobedient to. And in these days, Israel needs to hear the gospel, not just humanitarian aid from Christian organizations, as wonderful and as blessed as that is. Maybe that that way of communicating needs to be different, but it still needs to be communicated. Why? Because that is the prophetic message that has come through the prophetic line, that has come through the prophetic books in the Tanakh. When the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel and Amos went to the nation, often very humbled, often very humiliated, often very broken, but full of conviction... Oftentimes on the outside of society because they were, in a sense, exiled out of society. But they were fully filled with, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare the prophetic decree of God's deliverance or God's judgment based on the repentance, based on the reaction of the nation. There is nothing wrong with declaring that we as Jewish people have been disobedient to the Besorah of Yeshua when we can rightfully and historically acknowledge that we were disobedient to the prophets in their own time. There's nothing anti-Semitic about it. 
every rabbi would agree that we were disobedient to the prophets in their day and age. Why should we in any way cower or feel some false sense of guilt whenever we want to declare the gospel that says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Are there some obstacles? Are there some roadblocks to get through? Yes, absolutely. But a lazy person looks at a lion in the road and says, well, I'm not going to go down this road. Well, I'm just going to be a good example. Well, you're doing a good job because the Dalai Lama's being a good example too, but he's not on his way to heaven. Well, you don't know that. There is a conviction in this word that comes from this word that if when the Holy Spirit fills you, you can stand like a rock on the rock. Why? Because the wise man builds their house on the rock. Our framework, our paradigm is built on the rock. This is that prophecy. Jewish people need to hear this is the prophecy. This is the promise spoken of by the prophets that we rejected. God has not given up on us. God has given us a new, another chance. And the nations are supporting us. Look at this reality. There's fire that is poured out on the disciples in, in, in Acts chapter 2. And one thing that I, that I understand about fire uh, is that fire is very polarizing. Hmm? Fire is very absolute. No one has a casual encounter with fire. One person doesn't get it on them, scream and shout in pain, and another person get it on them and say, well, you know, that's nice. Well, just keep that to yourself. Fire is polarizing. The closer you get to the fire the more absolute with it you become because you actually take on the nature of it. I prayed for years. I said, Lord, fill me with your fire. And one day I started to cry out for mercy because of some trials I was going through. I said, God, I need your mercy. Why are you doing this to me? He said, you prayed for my fire. I put you on the altar. And as soon as the fire began to touch you, you began to want to get off. You can't get it in you unless you stay on the altar. The conviction will not be in you. You won't be able to stand unless you are polarized by God's presence. When I became a believer, I became polarized to the presence of God. I became polarized to who Yeshua is. My allegiance, my loyalty is to Him. If that offends you, I can't do anything about it. I'm not here to offend you. I'm not here to offend anyone in the flesh. But if the Holy Spirit... Well, I can't do anything about that other than pray. All flesh reacts the same to heat's polarization. It's an element that has a form, but yet it doesn't have a form. When God's Spirit comes, there's always a reaction, no matter if it's a good or a bad reaction. I've had some bad reactions when I've preached. Some really bad reactions. I've been chased out of places. Been knocked in the head a couple of times. I think one of the things that is so devastating to us as believers in our own society that we're not even aware of that affects us often. That's my alarm. I'm done. Is postmodernism. 
Point number two, I'll give you my two other points and then we're done. The empowerment to proclaim the prophetic message. The empowerment by the Holy Spirit is so we will be enabled to proclaim the final prophetic message of Messiah's Besorah of the kingdom to Israel and the nations. My last point is the expression of the Ruach is not always as easily definable, nor should it be. We will not always be able to put a name or a definition on what God's Spirit is doing in the earth. It may look polarizing. It may look controversial. The gospel itself is called the scandalon. Sometimes I look at the Messianic community and I say, what is it? And God says, exactly, that's it. That's what manna means. What is it? But the manna nurtured Israel while in the wilderness. Moses looked at the burning bush and said, what is this, a bush that burns but is not consumed? We always want to put a sharp definition when we look at Acts, when we look at the subsequent history that developed in the apostolic writings, we see that there was not a doctrinal framework put to what the Holy Spirit did until years after it had already occurred. Sometimes it takes us time to get a clarity to what may seem blurry in the vision God has given it to us. Avinu Shabbat our Father in Heaven. Father, I, I have prayed. Some people give an altar call, and yet there are very few who pray, and when they pray, the altar is burned up by fire. Elijah prayed, Father. He was a man with like passions like unto us. But he prayed earnestly for three and a half years and it didn't rain. Lord, I pray that you would fill your people. Give them strength. Give us the conviction to pray with conviction, not just to pray because of a routine. But thank you for the routine that establishes us so that we can have and operate in the conviction. Lord, I pray that everyone here would be inspired to lead their families in a soul loyalty to you so that you would empower us to be witnesses and to proclaim the message of Yeshua to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew. This is why your spirit longs to come upon us. This is why you want to fill us it's not just to have a show. It's so that we can be a witness. We thank you, Yeshua, for fellowship this morning. We bless you. And it's in your name that we ask these things. You said, Yeshua, if, if you ask a, bread, you won't, a piece of bread, you won't get a stone. If you ask for a fish, you won't get a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him for it? For him, actually. He's not an it. He's a, he's a person. We bless you, Lord. We thank you. Abba. In Yeshua's name, amen. God bless you. And Chag Sameach.